There's a genre of movie that I'm sure all of you will be familiar with. It's the, the sports film. And they come from varieties, of course. You can see a you know, slap shot and have a funny film about hockey. But some of my most favorite ones are, in fact, dramas that have a very serious kind of inspirational message to them. Two of my favorites are Hoosiers and Any Given Sunday. And one of the things that you notice in sports movies is that one of the most pivotal turning points in all of those movies is the locker room inspirational talk in the middle of the final game. Now what you'll find in that is a pretty common formula. The coach will get up and he'll notice that they're behind uh, several points in the game. In Hoosiers, it's basketball. Any given Sunday, it's football. And the coach will uh, kind of begin by saying, look at all the, the ways that we've succeeded to get to this point. We're now in the Super Bowl, or we're hitting the finals, or you guys have done such a great job. There's so many things that we've accomplished. And, and then he will kind of lay out the truth. But here's the challenge. We're down a touchdown. We're down uh, 20 points. Uh, and, and so the, the, the real calling here is clear to you. You need to step up your game. You need to go out there and dominate the court, and you need to make sure we make that up if we hope to win at the end of the game, but then a good inspirational speech always ends up with an attaboy. I know you can do it. You've done so well before. We've got the talent. I know very well that you will be able to do what I've asked of you because you've got it in you to succeed. And of course, they go on to succeed as a result of that inspirational speech that happens in the locker room at halftime. I mention that because I believe that what we're looking at here in Ephesians chapter 3, where St. Paul is sort of in the middle of his letter to the Ephesians, is that kind of talk. St. Paul here has given us two chapters already about what's happened in the past, about how it is that he had received a calling from God, a kind of revelation about what great things God was doing. And most supremely, we see in chapter 2, as I spoke about last week, God has done something incredible in Jesus. He has broken down the wall of enmity. He has taken away the hatreds that exist between peoples that are ancient and deep, and, and, he, and he shows up as the paradigmatic example of the hatred that exists between Jews and Gentiles, and Jesus, through his death, has crucified that wall of enmity. And he has brought about the possibility of taking those who are far away and bringing them near. And so I gave that example of Shirley Chisholm and how it is that through the power and, 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 and grace of God, she was able to reach out even to a person who despised her and her entire race of people and to bring about a reconciliation that seemed impossible by human standards. So Paul is here in chapter 3 in a transition because he's saying, first of all, in that locker room speech, let me tell you again, just remind you what I've just said, but what God has been doing since the beginning of the ages. Then he says, but you know, you got a hard task here. Through the church, God wants to take what I've given you, I'm passing you the baton, and I'm telling you about what you need to do. And then he says, no, what you're going to have to do is going to be hard. So I'm going to give you a little inspiration and let you know that what seems impossible to you because you're looking through a human lens is not impossible because of the grace of God. After this chapter, we get into sort of the second half of the game, and Paul starts saying how you can roll up your sleeves and get the job done. And he starts giving some practical advice. And so as I and Alana and Father Nash over the next few weeks will be talking about sort of things like how do you get along in, in actual church life when you have a variety of gifts? And, and how is it that you handle the fact that somebody's made you really angry? These are the things Paul will talk about in the future chapters as he transitions to the practical application. But this is a kind of transition. And so in keeping with that locker room analogy, I want to speak to you about those three things. What is Paul pointing us to what God has done? What is the task of the church? And why is it we can have confidence that we'll actually accomplish these things? 
So in a bit of a recap about what we've talked about, these are the sorts of things that Paul talks and, and says when he's speaking about what he has done, what God has done through him. He says, although I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me to bring to the Gentiles the news of the boundless riches of Christ, to make everyone see what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Later, he says, this was in accordance with the eternal purpose that he's carried out in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have access to God and boldness and confidence through faith in him. What is Paul saying? Paul's saying, remember what I've told you God has been doing. God has been in the habit of taking those who are far off, and you Gentiles know this because you just a, a few years ago were sacrificing to Zeus and the idols, you were engaged in pagan things. It's also true for you, my fellow Jewish people who have uh, been trained to stay away from Gentiles, and he's brought you so that you're actually sharing meals and sharing worship with pagan Gentiles. He has taken all of you, and I want to remind you what God has done. And more than that, what I want to tell you is, is that God has not only shown me that this is what he's doing, he says that this mystery that had been hidden, this truth that had been hidden is in fact, this isn't like God changed his mind yesterday. Or Jesus showed up on the scene and God said, you know what, Jesus, you've shown me the way and the error of my ways, and I used to hate those Gentile jerks, but now I'm going to bring him in because you've made me and convinced me that things are good. Instead, Paul says, what I've revealed to you, because God has revealed to me, so through the ages and his eternal purpose, he has always loved the Gentiles. He has always loved those who are on the outside. It's just that only now are we cluing in to something that should have been obvious in the past. When Paul speaks about what Christ has done in destroying the enmity, what he's saying is, is that God's plan has reached to the very beginning to destroy this enmity because his desire was never that there be Jew and Gentile separated people, but instead to be one people who have a common father our God, our creator, and the lover of our souls. It could be very easy for us to sort of say, well, duh, I mean, diversity is a good thing, isn't it? We're supposed to reject hatred. There's been a strong emphasis uh, lately because of, of a stronger focus on, on some of the, the ways that indigenous people have been hurt, that reconciliation is important. We're seeing in the United States a stronger emphasis in reconciliation with uh, African-Americans and, and other people in the United States, that, that racism is an evil thing and, and the things that divide us should be taken away. And yet Paul says the reality of it is, these are things that have not been obvious. These are things that in his time, and in many ways in our time, people have had blinders on and said that somehow I want to justify the separation and the hatred I have for other people and justify it because I believe that's what God wants. I mean, think about the ways that Jews and Gentiles don't get along that I spoke about last week, about the times that we hear in the, uh, the Gospels about people who say, uh, you know, why do you spend time, Jesus, with tax collectors and sinners? There are other people we shouldn't associate with. Paul has pointed the people back to say, here is the mystery that I want you to share with your Jewish friends and your Gentile friends, that from the very beginning, God had not wanted this. Think back to the time of Abraham, way back in the Old Testament that Jewish people, even to this day, consider their father. Abraham is told by God, you will be uh, uh, blessed with children. Your children, if you look up in the stars, so will be your, 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 your descendants. If you can count the stars, that's how many descendants you're going to have. And it's very easy to look at Abraham and say, Abraham is blessed by God, and yet forget that from the very beginning, even at the birth of the Jewish nation, with this, the father of the Jewish nation, God also says that through you, the nations of the earth will be blessed. 
If you look through the prophets, and particularly prophets like Isaiah, it's clear they speak again and again about how the Gentiles will be brought in to worship this same God. And Jesus in his ministry embodies this in the way that he eats with tax collectors and sinners. I want to remind you, says Paul, that at the very heart of the message that God gave to me and has given through the ages is this, to break down enmities, break down hatreds, to break bread and love the people who are different than you. And this is at the core of God's mission. This is what I've been telling you. And this, he says, as it goes to a second point, is what your job is. God has shown me, he has revealed to me this mystery, he has given me the privilege of sharing with the Gentiles and with everyone else this reality, but it is your job, church, to continue this as I pass the baton on to you. Your job as a church is to make this mystery known. Listen to what he says and, and how it is that he starts saying about what the challenging task the church has. He says, after he says, what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, he goes on to say, so that through the church, the wisdom of God and its rich variety might now be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. I'm doing this. I'm speaking to you, not just so that you can say, oh, wonderful. I was far off and God brought me in. How wonderful I feel like I'm loved and accepted. That's great. In fact, Paul says, not only am I telling you this so that you can feel good, I'm telling you this because I am giving you a sacred mission, the same mission that God gave to me, that through you, the church, the world, and even beyond the world, the principalities and heavenly powers might know that through Christ, things are changing. The old ways of hatred and the old ways of enmity are coming to an end. Now, we may say to ourselves, of course, you know, uh, these ways are coming to an end. We should speak about it. But it's an interesting fact that what St. Paul says is that we need to remember that there are announcements we need to make as a church, that the church has to live and act in a certain way, because when he says through the church, he doesn't just say through the church's preaching, through the words of the church and the preachers, that this single reality should be made known. He says through the church, the wisdom of God and its rich variety might be made known. What Paul is saying is that it's not enough to simply say, here's the deal, God wants you to love each other, get at it. In fact, what Paul, I think, is saying here is that through the church, the wisdom of God and the multifaceted variety, as he says, that the unity of the church between Jew and Gentile, the unity between male and female and slave and free and, and, and Scythian and Greek, this unity is something that the world will see only when it sees it lived out. Because I believe that the world, yes, needs to hear the message, but I believe that we live in a cynical world that has learned to disregard good words because it's heard so many bad ones. What the world needs to see is not just words spoken that inspire us. What the world needs to see is people living out on those words before it will give any credibility whatsoever. And this is not an easy thing to do. When Paul talks about the authorities and rulers in the heavenly places, he's referring to the fact that there are forces working in this world that are heavily invested in making us hate one another and stay divided. You know, you look around at the world and you think, well, who wants us to hate and who wants us to stay divided? I don't think it takes long for us to look out at the landscape of our culture to think, yes, actually some people really benefit from us hating each other. One of the sad examples is whenever I turn on the television and watch cable news. Have you ever watched a cable news program? 
You go there to think, well, I'd like to learn about the weather. I'd like to see what's going on in other parts of the world. And yes, you get a bit of that reporting, but what I often find is that the reporting isn't just, here's the facts. And it's not even just, I'm from one perspective and I'm saying this person is incorrect in that other perspective. It is telling us again and again, look how evil this person is and how evil everyone who agrees with them is. And it's across the board. I mean, the progressive or the conservative side, you watch Fox News or CNN or an MSNBC and you look around, especially, I think it's even more polarized in the United States. Why is it that so often what they present is opportunities for us to hate one another? It's woven into their business model. Do you know one of the, the, the interesting things that when we saw uh, Donald Trump leave office, the ratings for cable news all went down. Why? He was so controversial and, and, and many people had such strong opinions about him, that they loved to watch somebody on the television telling them how evil and wrong the other side was. And it caused people to watch more and more to make more and more advertising dollars because they knew that when they put things that were divisive and made us hate one another, they could make more money. Pay attention to social media. Uh, one of the things that they have in algorithms, if, you, if you're on Twitter or Facebook, the algorithm, which is sort of a fancy way of sort of saying how the computers uh, uh, decide what you're gonna see on your screen. There's so much information, what shows up on your screen? Well, it tends to be things that are trending, which means things that are very popular, getting a lot of comments and a lot of watches. The things that trend tend to be the things that cause most anger in people. Think about a, a nice, friendly story that goes out on Facebook and you get a few people clicking and saying, oh, that's a nice story. But put something ugly out there and you get people from all over saying how terrible this is and how typical it is of my enemies. And it makes it a popular post that shows up on your post and shows up on your iPad. And so you're tempted to say something more and pile on. And what happens? We hate each other even more. How often it is that this world seems terribly invested in people being divided. Make no mistake, that's how things are in this world, Paul says, but that's why it's so important that through the church, something is said that's different. And in a world in which everybody is speaking and yelling at top volume, a few extra yells in the right direction are not gonna make a difference. What makes a difference is that through the church, actually living out unity, the world and even those powers that are invested in us hating each other will see that there's another way and in fact, this is a more powerful way that in the end will be victorious. It's the kind of way that Shirley Chisholm showed in my sermon last week in reaching out to a person who is a hateful bigot and changing his mind through the power of God's grace. But it is also something that affects us in the small things that tend to divide us. If you're like me, you probably don't have, you know, enemies who literally hate your guts so much they want you dead. Uh, at least I hope you don't. And I hope none of you do watching either hope that I'm dead. What I tend to have, though, is when I think about the kind of people that I don't have much relationship, oftentimes, the reason I don't have much relationship is actually something small. Think about this example. Maybe you have a next-door neighbor or a person in your neighborhood who, uh, every time you talk to them, you can be assured that they are going to tell you their political opinions, and they're going to tell you that uh, vaccination is all a hoax, or they're going to tell you one thing or another about one thing or another, and you think, ugh. I just don't have the mental energy for it. And so you see, however, that this person has some physical disabilities that can't mow their lawn very well. They're having a hard time every time they pull out their lawnmower and you think, uh, maybe I should go help them. I mean, Jesus says to love your neighbor, but then you think, ah, man, this guy drives me nuts. 
Do I really want to uh, mow his lawn for 15 minutes when it means I have to have 20 minutes of co extra conversation about something I don't want to? And so we say, forget it. We may not hate our neighbor, but because we are not willing to put up with a little bit of inconvenience, we end up effectively having a division that the neighbor we should love is a person we don't actually love or help in any practical way. We say the same thing, you know, when it comes to the office. Who is it that you never sit with in the lunchroom? The person who's unpopular or frustrating or whatever the case may be. Or you see it, frankly, in church. The person who disagrees with you because they're too conservative or too progressive or whatever it is, we subtly encourage division because we don't take the time to actually spend time with and actually practically love people who are different than us. It is unbelievably rare in this world for that to happen. And what do we do to convince the world that there's another way, that we don't have to be divided, we don't have to hate each other? It does not always mean you make supreme sacrifices like the great figures of the civil uh, rights movement. It often simply means taking small steps to practically love the person God puts on your doorstep. When Paul says through the church to see the multifaceted reality of God's love for this world then, and God's wisdom displayed in this world, then why not look around at the multiple facets, the multiple directions, and say, is there anybody that I'm just not spending time with that maybe I should? Is there anybody I'm not talking to that I should? Is there anybody I'm not praying for and yet I should? Is there somebody out there who, for whatever reason, rubs me the wrong way and God has put them in front of me and said, here's your chance to show the world the division and hatred will not conquer, are you taking up on that offer? And are you actually doing the thing that needs to be done because he says you are making a thunderous announcement to the world and even the heavenly powers by simply loving? But here's the last thing, and I'll make it brief. I mentioned that so often in those locker room talks, the coach ends with an attaboy, you can do it. Paul knows very well that as you're reading, as you're listening, you're probably saying, oh, but Paul, you don't realize how truly annoying that neighbor is. <laughs> Paul, you're asking me something that's just too much. Yeah, I, I am asking that, I think Paul's saying. But here's why I have confidence that you can still do it. Paul says this, I pray that according to the riches of his glory, God may grant that you may be strengthened in your inner being with power through his spirit that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith as you're being rooted and grounded in love. I pray that you may have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. He ends the, the section of the letter with something we all know because we often say it at the end of the Eucharist. Uh, to him who the power working in us is able to accomplish abundantly far more than we can ask or imagine. But God can do more than what you can imagine can be done. But how is it done? by relying on his grace and not our own power. That is why I pray for you. And what do I pray that Christ dwells in your hearts through faith? Ask yourself how it is you let Christ dwell in your heart through faith. Dwelling is an interesting word, abiding, being with. I think it simply means spending more time with Jesus and giving him access to your life. You want to know your daughter a little bit better and, spend, uh, and, and understand her and have a better relationship, then the best thing you can do is play a little bit of Legos with her each day. You want to get to know your neighbor a little bit better, then it simply means, you know, inviting them over for an iced tea or a beer once in a while. You want to get to know the person who sits across the pew from you, then simply spend some time at coffee hour each Sunday asking them about their life. You want Christ to dwell in your heart? Christ will dwell in your heart and transform and change you and give you the power to change if you start making a habit of going wherever he is. Is it prayer? 
Why not spend time when you go walk your dog to say, Jesus, I'm going to go walk my dog, and instead of putting on my headphones like I normally do, I'm just going to walk and talk to you for a little bit and tell you what's going on in my life. Is it time at church? Well, maybe I'm going to pay attention to the sermon or pay attention to the music and ask, what is it saying to me? Is it reading scripture? Taking a little time each day to read a few verses and ask where Jesus is speaking to you? Or is it simply in spending time with brothers and sisters in Christ who you know will pray with you and who know care for you? Because I need to be reminded that Jesus loves me and that he has the power to do great things. This church, us as individuals, you as families, we can do this. We can be a united church. We can be a church that loves across divisions. We can be a church that sticks together in tough times. We can be a church that makes the world see that there's another way than the way of division and hatred. And we can do this if we let Christ dwell in this place. Let him have direction in the way that our church moves. Let him have direction in your life. And look day in and day out, not only as an individual about how you can spend time with Christ, but how we as a church can keep being enriched, keep listening to the wisdom that he gives us through his spirit, and keep being empowered by his grace. I think our church is an excellent opportunity in this divided, troubled, and often hateful world to show the world that there's another way. And that other way is the way of Christ. And it is not a way that is impossible. It is a way that can do infinitely more we can ask or imagine. Because we are children of the Most High God, and He loves us, and He will give us the strength to do what needs to be done to show this world that there is a better way and give us the satisfaction that we are part of this great plan that has begun in the very beginning of the ages to make all humanity one. Let us pray. Lord our God, you promise us that you can do infinitely more than we can ask or imagine. And Lord, to be honest, we can imagine an awful lot. But sometimes uh, we imagine things wrongly. Sometimes we imagine things that actually are too small. And sometimes we can't even imagine getting to know and to love people who are different than us in mild ways. Help us to be the kind of people who really trust in your words to let your power work through us so that we can take small steps so that through time and through the wisdom and guidance of your church, we can make big steps in our culture to transform the ways of hatred and ignorance into ways of wisdom and of love. Let this be the epicenter of a revolution in this community, Lord, a revolution in which people come to turn from the despair at the divisions of this world, and they see our unity and love and come to believe that there is another way possible. Let us, O oh Lord, this church on the hill be a shining light on the hill so that we, O oh Lord, might show to this world that through you great things are possible. In fact, things that seem impossible are no trouble for you at all. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen.